Hi. Well, you know, I'm Eddie Turner, and uh, I'm here on Talking Blues because I think maybe I should speak for myself once in a while. But whatever. I'm Eddie Turner. This is Talking Blues. So how are you? I am doing quite well. I'm doing well. How are you? I'm how did the COVID well. program go for you? <laughs> um, it's been it's been interesting. It's it's been busy. So up until recently, it's been really really busy. So I've been very lucky that way, and I haven't um, been affected that greatly by it. I mean, I think I have been affected by it, but um, I'm still working, and I'm you know, still going out for walks and enjoying life. So it's all been good. And you? How's it been for you? You know, outside of not performing, which is really one of the only things I really kind of enjoy doing, um, it's been fine. I, I do the same. I spent last summer and all fall and when the minute it happened, once they shut everything down, I just spent time... Uh, Walking around, enjoying myself, working on the CD, um, just just acting as if it really didn't matter. And in some ways, it really didn't matter. It just allowed me time to reflect on things. Um, your CD, which is going to be released on May 14th, I think, this yeah. week. Um would would it have been released a lot earlier had had it not been for the pandemic? No. Oh, okay. All things come in the proper time. <laughs> and this was the proper time. So it didn't change your schedule at all. No. For the for the recording it had the pandemic had absolutely nothing to do with with the recording. In fact, um it might have made it happen just a little bit sooner. Because um, I was able to focus a little bit more on it than I than I would have if if I had been record, traveling and touring, I probably couldn't give as much time to the actual finishing of the CD and the things that really it's always those last minute little changes that that you do but you spend. Hours coming up with that two-second change. And th there's, I had a lot of time to do that. I had a lot of time to change my mind, you know, and say, you know, this really isn't working. Even though I wasn't under a deadline, I was able just to just say, you know, I hate that. You know, after 50 hours of work on some song, you turn around and say, you know, I really hate that. I really, really hate what I just did. And then there, there are times when that after you have that realization and you're sitting in the studio, you just start playing. And when you're done, not thinking that you're really recording something, when you, when you listen back to it, you say, wow. That was really good. Did you record that? And the engineer will always say, hopefully, yes, I did. <laughs> and that actually happened on a couple of songs 
that actually made it to the CD. And I thought, initially kind of thought, well, that's, that's trash. But I took it, you know, took it back to my house, to my own little, little home studio, and just started noodling around with stuff. And then all of a sudden things started to happen. Because A, you're not under the clock. Right. And um, you, can, you can take whatever risk you want because no one's going to know except for you until you take it out. So you don't have to worry about someone saying, hey, that really sucks. Or, wow. It's, there's something about, I'm a very private person. And I don't like doing things in front of people until I know that it's right. And so going, doing, working out of my house <clears throat> a lot of times allows me to do that, just to make mistakes. Private, even in front of your producer, engineer, band members? Like, do you feel that you're not comfortable working, working out ideas in front of them? Yeah, because I, it's, I have a roundabout way of doing things. You know, I'll start with something knowing that it's stupid and ridiculous and then try to flesh it out and just cut and paste and cut and paste in my own mind. Okay, and, and then I'll, I'll hear something and then I'll go, oh, that's really cool. And fortunately, I recorded it. I'll have maybe 50 tracks of guitar stuff. And then I just go through and erase stuff, you know, because I've run out of space and then I'll erase stuff and then um, come back, come back to it and say, well, there's a, there's a kernel of truth here. Let's follow that path. And that's, that's, to me, that's helpful. And then when I think I've, I've reached as far as I can go and it makes sense to me, then I'll take it to the producer and the engineer, plug it in and go, well, what do you think? You know, and then, then, but they can have at it. But at that point, it's either going to go away completely or we'll, we'll work with it. But I've already established the perimeters and the guidelines of that particular piece. So it's, in my mind, it's the way it's going in the right direction. Has it always been like that? Has that always been the way you've worked? Yeah, always. And where does that come from? Being a scared little kid, <laughs> probably, you know. Really? I was always, you know, when I was a kid, um, I was a stutterer, okay. a bad stutterer. So you didn't want to say too much to anyone because all of a sudden you're just... You just, it's just, you know, stutterers, I'm sure. Yeah, yeah. And they just go ballistic when they can't get their point out. So it took me years to, of just regimented practice to get beyond that. So you're just always holding everything in for the rest of your life. So you mentally want to make sure it's all okay. When did I you think. get over that? Yeah. You know, every, every now and then I can feel a stutter coming on. No, but at what age did you think you overcame that? Probably by the time I was 18, 19 years oh. old. 
Okay, so you started playing guitar when you were 12. Yeah, right around then. Did guitar and music do anything for that? For what? For the stuttering or for your self-confidence. I didn't sing. I didn't have to open my mouth. I was just a guitar player in the band, which is the role I've always liked. Just being the, that guy behind the lead singer that plays great guitar. <laughs> and you go, who right, so is that guy? Who, okay, how, how did the guitar come into your life? Well, I would imagine, like anyone my age, you know, you saw um, the Beatles and the Stones on television, you know, when you're a kid. My uncle was uh, a huge jazz aficionado. So, you know, you, you talk about pop music and he'd reprimand you and say, no, you should be listening to people like George Benson or go back to old Miles Davis. And so he's showing me all this, what he called, that was his, that was his music. You know, that was the jazz that he liked. You know, he was not, he was not into, he was not a big Dixieland fan or a fan of uh, Armstrong. He understood where all about it, but it wasn't his thing. You know, he was much more into, 50s jazz, smooth stuff, you know, cool stuff. I, I, read, I read that you, you were born in Cuba. How long were you in Cuba? Oh, it seemed like a minute. <laughs> like, do, do you have memories of Cuba? Yeah, or? yeah, 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 I do. But it wasn't that long. I mean, I was, I was we, were, we were back in the States be, um, before Castro. Okay. Or as my cousins say, we were we were back in the states, BC. <laughs> you know, does the Cuban upbringing play into your musicality at all, or has well, nothing to do with it? Not much. I mean, my big Cuban musical influences are going with my crazy aunt um, to her parties. Cuban parties in the north side of Chicago, and I'm a kid, so that's where I first learned about beer. <laughs> Hot-looking women that were, that were 15 years older than me, and dancing, and I couldn't dance. So I would just sit, the, sit at these parties and just watch and just listen to the music. And that was the, that's that clave-style stuff that I, the minute I hear it, I just go, I love it, you know what I mean? But that wasn't for me being in Cuba. I just had to have the crazy aunt who was a Cuban. Because my mom didn't do that stuff. I mean, that was like, oh, no, we can't do that. But my aunt would just grab me. says, let's go. And I'm like, <laughs> okay, because I know where we're going. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so the other part of growing up in Chicago was that it introduced you to the blues. Yeah. Tell me about it, that. Um, again, that would have been like, you know, I was probably more into rock first, okay, and then I kind of went to the blues because I was starting to learn how to play guitar, and um, so you're listening, you know, mid-60s to Clapton and Hendrix and all that stuff, and so... 
you you just say, well, where did they, where did these these guys get their stuff from? And then obviously, I mean, it's a story you've probably heard from every musician that plays guitar that you've ever interviewed. Is that well? Then I w- trace the roots. Well, you know, tracing the roots was really easy in Chicago. You just hop on the train and go down to the South Side, scared shitless, and um, try to check it out. You know, I mean, you're not getting into the clubs. That's for damn sure. But you can stand, you know, in the alley or stand outside on the corner and 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 hear the music come out the door. I mean, I, I remember going to my uncle's house one day down on the south side. And uh, he said, well, don't go walking too far away. And But I did. And uh, I saw this guy with a little tiny crappy amplifier and uh, playing slide guitar. And I went, wow, that's a really cool sound. And it turns out, I found out years later, that was Hound Dog Taylor just on the corner. Okay. And uh, I, I didn't think anything of it. I just knew that it was a sound that I really liked, you know, and I was, you know, I'd go back to that corner, never saw the guy again until I used to go to this club when I was old enough to, to get into clubs. And he'd be playing down this place called Minstrels on the north side of Chicago. So, um, you know, you just go check it out. It's, it's all there. You, you personally, because it's so convenient, you don't think of it as a challenge or some kind of musical mecca to go visit. It's the blues. They've got records. You can go buy those records. You can actually go see them perform. Okay. And, and I did. So it's not a big deal. Not a big deal, but was there a point where it it had a major impact on you or influence on you? No. No, it it didn't have a not like, you know, I I went down to the to the river type of a moment. (laughs) Um, All good music had an equal impact on me. I really didn't care. I just had to like it. And once, once that was probably a bigger non-event than anything else, because I, I went and saw, there's so much music out here. There's so many good players out here. How could I ever be good enough to compete? You know, I mean, you sit there and you listen to, I remember listening to the, to the first, uh, CTI, uh, Bad, 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 Bad Benson record. My uncle played it. He said, check this out. And it was just like, I was just barely learning how to play guitar. I could do the country and Western chords on, I think it was some cheap Tisco guitar. And uh, <clears throat> I'm going, whoa, what is that? Is there three or four guitar players? No, it's just one guy. It's, <laughs> It's there's there was in, in the 60s and early 70s, there was so much scary music out there that you just you just didn't you just didn't get it. I mean, there was too much. So I would listen to one thing and think I'd like to do that. And then you turn around and you listen to something else and go, I'd like to do that, too. And. All of a sudden, I kind of became a chameleon. 
and I would just learn little bits. As one of my friends used to say, you're a dilettante. You can play a lot of things okay, or people think you might know what you're doing, but we know you don't. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, when did you think you knew what you were doing? Never did. Still don't. Because I still make those tangents all the time. It's just one week I'm listening to one guy going, oh man, that's really cool. I want to learn how to do that better. And then sometimes I'll say to myself, you know, I can really do that. I already know that. I just didn't know that I know that. So you just kind of reawaken to foolish little experiences and try to put it all together, which is why people say that you're just a weird guy, Ed. <laughs> okay, so at what point did you decide you wanted to pursue music? Because you have an interesting path that has led you to where you are today. But at one point, what did you think? I, I, this is Music is something I want to pursue seriously. Well, I thought that when I was like 14 or 15 years old, I, I wanted to pursue it full time. And, and, you know, and you work at it. And, you, you know, I think I had made major leaps forward during, you know, the late 60s, you know, early 70s. And um, you, you, you plot your life experiences where you can put yourself in front of other good musicians. And hopefully someone will say, wow. Why don't you come along with me for a little bit? But that never really quite happened. So I had to, you know, make my own way in the wilderness. And you make mistakes, and sometimes you don't. But yeah, it was early on when I decided I really wanted to play music. But you decided to go to university. Yeah, um, well, you got to do things to, to keep the cash flow coming in right you know what I mean so you know I was smart enough to get a pile of scholarships and made my parents happy you know and did you have an idea what you wanted to do with your education yeah I was gonna I was either going to be a, a sociologist specializing in warfare which is what I worked on and deviance which is how I started in sociology and a graphic designer of which I also did which is how I got to Colorado by being a good graphic designer in high school. But you still, when you moved to Colorado, you still pursued music. Yeah, absolutely. Always looking for that gig. Okay, and then you were in a like a punk R&B band? Yes. <laughs> Explain that to me. What, what was the Immortal Flames? What, were they, what was that like? It was great. I mean, it was like... You know, I was kind of getting tired of, you know, the, the, you know, every decade there's, there's a point where music just becomes vapid and um, so like in the 70s and whatever you had bands that, you know, Kansas, things like that, these, these kind of bands that I just didn't like. They weren't rock bands, you know, right. I mean. Led Zeppelin is a rock band. They're a rock band in the 60s. They're a rock band today. 
okay? That's a rock band. Okay, when you've got all these guys doing, you know, your classical influences and blah, 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 and the flautists outside of Jethro Tull, which was a rock band then. <laughs> and if they were to play again, they'd be a rock band today. But most of the time, they were just doing things. Bands were just stupid, was my opinion. Right. I could have been wrong. Obviously, I was wrong when you look at record sales for those bands. Okay. I mean, I was just off the beaten path, but I've never been one person to take the main highway. You know, I just usually kind of like walk around and if you see a, if you see a sign that says, turn left, well, you just turn right because you know everybody else is going left. <laughs> so you just do what you want. And um, once I realized I couldn't get into the bands that I'd like to be have been in, it just didn't make any sense to tow anybody's party line. You just do what you want. And, you know, people don't like it. Hey, too bad, because I do. At least I know when I don't like it, I know not to do that anymore. But getting back to the Night Flames, um, you know, I heard... You know, I heard the Sex Pistols, and that was cool, but it wasn't interesting. And then I heard The Clash. And then I went, whoa. I get the very first record. We had no, no song was over like a minute 30. It seemed like there were like 40 songs on this one record. <laughs> and um, I got it. It was just like, wow, this is really cool. This is really refreshing. And then I turned, then I started following The Clash back, and they were, went into the Ramones who I was never a big fan of, but I saw them live. They were really good um, and started looking at weird things. So the Night Flames was um, the answer to all the art rock bands because the Talking Heads were big and I'm in college. And so all the art rock bands were doing, you know, the Talking Heads thing. So we just, so, so me and my friend, Bobby Goldstein, love this guy, um, we decided to do a punk rock, anti-art rock band. And that became the Night Flames. And so we took James Brown grooves and made them even faster. You know, <laughs> we did songs like This Diamond Ring, you know, in, in, in a punkish manner. You know, we would just look, look, for the, look, at, look around the edges and find out what is the last thing that you would expect that's what we're going to do. Was there yeah. a goal? Like, did you, was the goal just to get gigs, or was there a bigger goal than that with that band? No, this was just this was just for a lark, and because nobody would nobody would book us at all, <laughs> we we started these parties, and we used to rent the Moose Lodge, and the first time we did it, the Moose Lodge ran out of liquor. Okay, and it was, a, it was a cash bar. We didn't get a penny of the bar. We just had paid for the room and people had to pay to get in. So the next time we did it, which was like a month, two months later, the Moose Lodge tripled the amount of alcohol they normally order because we were playing there. They still sold out of liquor. So we started doing these huge parties up in, up in the Boulder Canyon and they were a huge success. And then clubs started 
saying, hey, why don't you play at our club? And we said, you can't pay us enough to play at your club. <laughs> well, what do you want? Well, I want about $3,000 for one night because I said, we make five at the Moose Lodge. <laughs> so, you know, and we were all still in school. So it was just, um, and then it was, it was just a blast. And then it kind of got a little too serious. And um, I got the in, invitation to join, um, I believe I'm in chronological order, uh, Tracy Nelson and, and Mother Earth. And I went down there for six months. And uh, I guess I wasn't good enough because, you know, after that, you know, they just kind of sent me packing. And, uh, you know, that was okay. I went back home. What did you learn from that experience? Uh, well, one thing I learned was that you might as well just be yourself because you, I knew it, it turns out after about a month and a half, I knew what she wanted and she was right. Okay. And I knew what she wanted and I just wasn't it. So um, unless you want me for, for me, you're just best getting somebody else. You know, it's, it's just never going to work because I'm always going to, unfortunately, in the bigger picture sometimes, I'm eventually always going to do what I want. And there's nothing wrong with that. In fact, I think it's great. And but so, you knew at that point what you knew what you wanted. Like yeah. You knew what that was. Yeah, I knew what that was. I, I, you know, I definitely knew what that was. And, and I doubled down on that because what made me come to Colorado was because I wanted to join the band Zephyr. I mean, I saw they played in the Chicago area. I want to say, I could be wrong, but I want to say it was, it was a high school function. And I went. And th sorry, this is this is Tommy Boland's old band. Yeah, Tommy was Candy was the singer, David Givens was the bassist. Um, I want to say it was it must have been Robbie Chamberlain on drums. Uh, guy, I think the guy's name was Ferris on keyboards, and Tommy. And this was just a rocking band. Now, needless to say, you know I was a big fan of Jeff Beck, Truth album, that whole that whole era, the faces. I mean, you know, I, I'm in, I'm into that total, that whole British rock thing right. by, by 1970, you know, but I always wanted to, I said, I, I saw that band. And I said, I want to join that band. And it seemed like a, a possibility, which is why I went to the university of Colorado. Cause that put me closer thousand miles closer to my goal. <laughs> so after playing in various because in Boulder, there were a lot of country rock bands. So if you wanted to gig, you had to play country rock stuff. And, um, but I finally got the audition and um, with Candy and David, and I got the gig. And I can't say that they really liked me, but I was fucking good. I could do so, stuff that nobody else could do, you know what I mean? And be myself. 
and add a whole nother element to the band at that time. Okay, when did that confidence come to you? Because it just kind of showed up one day, just kind of like walked up, knocked on the door and said, hey, screw them all. You're really good. They can't do this. These other guitar players can't do this. And it kept getting better because literally every gig we played, there'd be like this little row of guitar players that wanted to take my job. And Candy enticed them. She said, yeah, you could have his job. Put up or shut up. And none of them could put up. And they're all good guitar players. Don't get me wrong. These guys were good. But I guess I had something special that most guys don't. Because they didn't get rid of me. But Candy passed away unexpectedly. Yes. And at that point, you decided to get out of the music business, if I'm, if I'm correct. Yes. I decided it was time to do something different. I think I was like 32 years old. So, I mean, this has been a lifelong dream to join that band. You finally got in the band. Was it yeah. because it was a dream accomplished? Or what made you decide, okay, now it's time to do something different? Well, I had done what I wanted to do. I didn't want to start my own band because um, I didn't like singing. I didn't want to be a singer. And if you're in a band, somebody has to be the singer. Um, I was, you know, I wrote a good portion of the last record, Heartbeat, with Zephyr, with Candy and David. And, um, you know, I was just, I guess I was tired, you know. So I had to come up with something. So I decided to be a realtor. And did you give up music completely? For a Pretty much for a, for a number of years. You know, I still play with the fornicators every once in a while, but that was, you know, that was just like, you know, going to somebody's backyard and jamming. You don't have to do a lot of, no effort involved. It was effortless. Did, and did you miss music or not? Um, yes and no, you know. I didn't miss the, the hassles of being a musician, but I, you know, I, I miss just playing, you know, just picking up a guitar, you know, I didn't miss not having to go to rehearsal. I didn't miss um, having to learn new songs to, to try and maybe attempt to be current, you know, <laughs> just, just, uh, you know, you just fornicators. There was old, there were oldies. You played oldies. You didn't have to reinvent the wheel. Um, you just got to do what you wanted. Well, you yeah, you just did what was on the record, and everybody knew that in the band, and we liked it. We liked that thing. What made you decide that it was worth going back into music a little more seriously? Because you were a successful realtor, were you not? I was okay. You know, I, you know, I wasn't some, you know, hot shot with five assistants walking around with a phone plugged in my ear every, every minute of the day. You know, I, I wasn't that kind of a realtor. I, was, I did enough to, to, to make reasonably good money and, you know, enjoy myself and meet people and have a good time. You know, um, I mean, let's face it. It's the only, one of the only jobs where your main 
uh, part of the business is going out to lunch with somebody. <laughs> so what got you back into music more seriously? Well, it wasn't serious. But um, Kenny gave me a call and he said, hey, man, I'm, uh, Otis has got me doing doing this thing and he says it's a pain in the ass but um i feel like i have to do it so i picked you to share my pain (laughs) (laughs) sorry give me um tell me about how you knew kenny and this is kenny passarelli yeah um i met it was it's hard to describe i met kenny because he was friends with another guy that i knew and they used to do uh trading deals with Otis and this guy who lives up in Canada now, Billy Lockman. And so they were, you know, always doing weird deals. This is like antiques and stuff. Yeah, right? antiques. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And um, so I met him and then he used to come around to the Fornicator shows and he would sit in playing bass. And um, we became pretty good friends, not by playing music, but just by hanging out, just talking about a lot of things other than music. You know, music was not the focal point of our relationship, which was great. And, you know, let's face it. I mean, you know, not too many people get to know famous rock stars, you know, so hanging out with him was a blast, you know, and and he loves to talk. So he would tell me all these great stories and I'm a really good listener, you know, (laughs) and I would just listen and just go, wow, that's really cool. So we became good friends. How much did you know about Otis's music at that point? What? Were you you quite aware of Otis's music? I've known Otis since I was 13 years old. Oh, I didn't know that. Probably from what I've been able to ascertain over the years, Outside of a few people, I've probably known him longer than anyone. There are only a few people that I know that that have known him longer, you know, like his brother and his mother. (laughs) And a few other people. But, um, yeah, I've known Otis forever. So when this offer came, was it, I mean, the way you put it, was it, what is it? intriguing to you to make a go at this well you know I, I got to pick up my guitar and walk in front of people and play for 45 minutes have a few laughs a few cocktails and i didn't have to rehearse can't beat that <laughs> did i mean that first album did quite well and i presume it led you to travel a little more um well yeah the, the record did the record did pretty good um, I was, I was still in the, I really don't care mode if it does good or not. I'm just a few shows here, a festival here, you know, this is, this is cool. This is fun. But, you know, I was never all in until we started touring Europe. Then that put a whole new slant on things because I'm going to Europe for the first time, you know, and we do, we do festivals and, 
by the time most most people knew about us, I mean, what people heard when people heard about Otis, the one change from when we started to that point was I was playing, I had a Gibson uh, 175 semi-acoustic and a little tiny amplifier and no pedals. I just plug it in and just, you know, noodle about for two hours, you know, and um, didn't matter what he played. It was always in two keys. So (laughs) G or A. Occasionally he'd play an E. So it was, you know, I, I didn't have to think or anything. And um, then one day I went, eh, this is getting old. So I brought a little bit bigger amplifier, a few pedals in my Stratocaster. And I turned that fucking thing up. And then all of a sudden the sound changed. Kenny started playing louder. Otis was kind of like not sure. <laughs> but he, but he, he went with the program. And then next thing you know, the next record comes out. The second record comes out. First record, people gave it, you know, yeah, man, blah, blah, blah. And the second record, and then all of a sudden, it was a whole different sound. And so when we started playing live, it was, it was like a three-piece without a drummer, okay? And between Kenny and I, we learned how to approximate the sound of a drummer between the way I would play rhythm and Kenny would play bass. You thought you heard a drummer, but there wasn't one there. And you did five albums with him? Mm-hmm. Okay, so at what point, at, at the fifth album, what are you thinking? Time to move on? Oh, no, he got rid of me. <laughs> okay. He just said, Is that a surprise? And I went, okay, fine. And at this point, had you just given up your real estate business? No, no. Because when we tour was- Europe, I take my little laptop with me on the plane, and I could sit there. And then I, then now I have an assistant back in Denver. Okay, so she would show show the properties. I'd write the contracts. And you're eight hours ahead of the people in the United States, so you're you you can do this. I guess if I had gone to to Australia, no, somewhere Japan. in Hawaii, it might not have worked. But because I was in Europe, it worked. So I kept selling real estate. Okay, so then you're told you're fired, and and what are you thinking? Like, are you shocked? Are you pissed? Are you happy? Are you? Well, there's a little bit of all of that, you know. And um, his label for the previous two years have been trying to get me to do a record. Okay, and I kept saying, you know, that's just not fair. You know, I shouldn't trample over his good fortune, Otis's good fortune. I'll just do what I like. And also doing my own record would mean I had to go find a singer, which I really didn't feel like doing. And it also (laughs) meant writing songs, which I really didn't feel like doing. And um, because with Otis, I didn't have to do anything. Just had to be there. Okay, but, and I know it sounds great, but was there any part of you that wanted to write songs or wanted to sing? Oh, yeah. I, I you know, <laughs> I, I, 
I had written songs for quite some time. So I had a, a cassette that, uh, tapes full of songs that I'd written. <clears throat> but I didn't know if they were any good. And I knew, you know, Otis's label was a blues label. And I just didn't think that I would really fit in the blues world. And, um, and you know, it, like I said, it wouldn't have been fair right. to, to um, put out records under my name while Otis is still in business, I guess. You know, I didn't want to, didn't think it was fair to be part of his band and compete with that. You know, so I just kept saying no. So when I, when Otis is fired, when Otis fired me, Fred called and said, "Well, how about now?" <laughs> and I said, "You got a deal." Like like that, no so it was, hesitation. It was no hesitation, none whatsoever. I thought, you know, the devil's in the details, and I'll deal with the devil later. You know, but that means also maybe having to sing. Well, I wasn't planning on it, okay? This was like, it, Kenny made it apparent to me that I was singing once we were in the studio. <laughs> he, I kept saying, we got a singer yet? And he go, don't worry about it. <laughs> There's one coming. Don't worry about it. Okay, no problem. And he goes, you're singing. So that's kind of how that happened. Okay, so how does one get confident in their own singing when you didn't really want to be a singer? I don't know. I'll be perfectly honest. I don't know. I don't know. There's still times when I listen to that record and I cringe when I hear my voice. I mean, literally cringe. It, I don't think I felt reasonably comfortable until... Miracles and Demons, which would have been the third, third. record. And, um, and the reasons why I, 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 I kind of became, worked on becoming more, as opposed to being a singer, in my mind, I kept telling myself, you're a stylist. <laughs> you can get, so you can get away with a little bit more. I mean, right. you're evoking a mood. You're, you're doing this. And that has carried me through to, even to this record. The, the, way, the, way I think, the way I sing is to accommodate my range and to make it interesting, at least to me and hopefully to other people. But at least, you know, I'm not going for the Mariah Carey thing, you know. Um, it's half of what I do is spoken, you know, it's really soft and in your face. Cause a good friend of mine used to always say he was a asset manager <clears throat> and he used to always, he would talk to me about my voice and he, Michael used to always say, he says, you know, you talk at a normal voice during meetings. Cause this is what he would do. And he says, but when you want to make a point, <laughs> You just bring your voice down and everybody gets sucked in and then you got them. So I applied that concept to how I sing. Okay. So on the third album, you start feeling comfortable with your singing. Yeah. Do you remember the moment? 
Do I remember the moment? Yeah. Do you remember the moment when when all of a sudden singing became a little more comfortable for you? Yeah, it was after it was done, and I didn't cringe. And I was there were songs on there that I, I felt really kind of got that stylish thing going, and um, like uh, there's a song on that record called "I Remember" or "In the Morning." Uh, where it's half spoken, half sung. I kind of thought of Frank Sinatra when I was doing hmm. some of those vocals, because he would do that on some of those, some a lot of his songs. You know, quarter to three, no one around except for you and me. That's got that thing in it. It's got it's that that cool hip factor that. I'm not trying to be your singer. I'm trying to be your friend. And that's kind of what. And so after, and there was a lot of, I was still a lot of confusion. But when I listened to that record, uh, the final master, I, I said to myself, I think I did it. That's a, but it that must have been a neat feeling. Yeah, it was really cool. It was really cool. Okay, what about the idea from a guy who's happy supporting a singer, just doing his thing, to becoming the front man? And, and it's now your name up in the lights. I mean, how was that adjustment to be the solo artist? You know, I, tr I just try not to pay attention to that issue. Because then, you know... If, if you if you go too hard on it, I think you become a dick. You know, you want everybody to think you're great. You know, and and just just another old guy from Denver. You know, I just do what I want to do. You know, don't take me off because I will get pissed. <laughs> but. You know, life should be easy. Life, right, but I know. mean, do you have, now it's your name in the light, so it's now your name being represented. Do you have the confidence to be that person? And do you know who that person is? I am that person. <laughs> yeah, I, I, know, I know that. I but. am that guy, okay? And I'm, uh, I know my faults, you know, and, uh, if it's true, you can say whatever you want. I'm not going to get, I'll be pissed because you said it, but I'm not going to come after you for any particular reason. Um, but, you know, I know who I am. And the guy in the lights is only that guy from the start of the show to the end of the show. Okay. After that, I'm still Eddie Turner. Um, I, I, you know, I'm surprised that so many fans, when they make comments, they always usually would end up saying some form of, he was such a nice guy. You know? And I never think about it. I just treat people the way I want to be treated. I don't, I don't really know much of a different way of approaching things. Um, 
Yeah, sorry. I think, you know, I, I didn't mean that you didn't know who you were. I think I meant when you when you step up front to become the solo artist as opposed to the guitar player for another musician, that creating that person, that persona on stage, was that just natural? Was that just who you are and there's nothing of an adjustment? Or was there some thought that had to go into being the guy who's going to be in front of the mic all the time? Okay, well, that guy, <laughs> that guy is the guy with the wicked smile that really knows what the game is. That's who that guy is. And that's the guy that, that guy? turns to the. That's the guy that turns to the ba- bass player and says, "Watch this." <laughs> and you you sell that story. Okay, it's not. It's not a story that's far from the truth. Okay. And I don't make show, okay? I don't go out there and have a bunch of lines and this, that, and the other. It's just kind of like I walk out there and just be exactly who I am with a wicked smile. But that came easy to you. Came very easy to me, you know? Did you have an idea of what you want to accomplish as a solo artist? Yeah, I wanted to keep doing it. <laughs> that's, that's really it. I want to be able to, I love making records. I love walking into a studio, sitting down in the chair, relaxing and saying, okay, this is the idea that I have. Here's some rough tracks. I mean, as opposed to walking in with, with charts and everything, I'll play some rough stuff for the guys in the band. And then I always tell them, hey, you know, but I said, it's a collaborative effort. You know, so you just do what you think is right. And if it's right, you won't hear a peep from me. If it's wrong or I don't like it, then you'll hear something. And, you know, these every every record, the, everybody turns around and just puts in killer performances. I mean, because I'm not telling them what to do. I know what I'm what I want to hear. But, but they don't need to know that. And I, you know, people, when people do what they think is the right thing, a lot of times it makes me turn around and say, wow, I never thought of that. Let me make my adjustments to make that work because that is cool. That's so much cooler than what I was thinking. Okay, so let's use that. Let me use that. Let me take advantage of people that God put here on earth to walk into the studio with me and want to do this, okay? I mean, you know, it's not like they're coming in collecting a check that's, you know, studio scale plus 50%. You know, they're walking in, they're probably getting, they could get paid more going down the hall to some somebody else, but they kind of like what it is that I'm doing. I mean, I guess it gives them the opinion that they can, they're respected for their own idiosyncrasies. In fact, I encourage those things. Did you find being a solo artist, um, I mean, obviously you have business sense because of your experience with um, real estate. Did you find that adjustment to being a leader and band leader and having to take care of more business, the business end of things, 
Was that an easy transition for you? Yeah, that was pretty simple. It was just like real estate. You're the last person to get paid. <laughs> right. <laughs> no change. All right. So let's now going forward, here you are on your fifth album? Yes. This will be my technically my fifth, my fourth studio record. Called Change in Me. Yes. And what is the change in you? Or does it have anything to do with that? Everything is different. Um, this record kind of started off, God, it would have been about seven or eight years ago. Because when, let me see, that would have been 2015. So I probably had, that was when the live album came out, which was basically just a place marker. Okay, just, it had been five years, time for a record. We did a good couple really good shows, put them together and put out a live record so people would remember that I'm still alive. And that record did pretty good, surprisingly enough. So I started writing that song. And it was originally it was going to be called Standing on the Front Line. Okay. And, um, you know, I've been just been seeing a lot of stuff, you know, and, um, you know, I was just kind of getting pissed. And so the change in me is it's, it's, it's change, about, change about people's attitudes and persona, maybe the way I was seeing the world at that particular point in time, you know, weird, weird stuff was just in my mind. It was probably, well, no, not probably. It was just weird stuff that was in my mind. And I was mentally starting to, to change in, in a sense that I was taking less and less stuff from people, you know, I guess I'd, I'd fire off a little faster than I used to, you know, the old, the older you get, the less you care, you know, and I was, you know, it was kind of like, you know, it's really what you're talking about is really not important. And to me anyway, it's important to you probably, <laughs> and that's fine, but you know, I don't need to hear this and I don't really care. Okay. So pick up your toys and go somewhere else. (laughs) And, and so these songs just started coming out. I mean, lyrically things did, I would be driving down the road and I'd find a line. Um, it would just come to me and I would just pick up my phone and speak it into the phone. And so I wouldn't forget it because, you know, Things, my mind still runs pretty fast, okay? And so things that sound great one minute, you know, may next day not sound so great. But if I, could, if I knew exactly what it was that I said, maybe it's just a preposition that I got wrong, it make, would make sense. So now it's time to start writing stuff down so that I have the actual influx of the meaning of the sentence or the paragraph or whatever, even the title of a song. So I started writing things down, looking at notes and pulling things together and, and um, actually making songs. I didn't have melodies or chord changes or anything, but I had lyric, lyrical things and choruses and um, sometimes some songs had two choruses, you know, um, just because that's just what I wrote. They, be, they became two choruses in a real short verse. And then I started writing the music to go with it. And 
making things fit, slamming things in. So you get really strange phrasing in some cases to make it work with, with what I thought was the music. And um, some things just happened. You know, they're, they're like chord changes that in my right mind, I never would have come up with. But for some reason, because of the lyric and the way to make that lyric work and become important, you put in this really weird chord, like standing on the front line is a perfect example. I would never sing that way, ever. But because of the previous lyric and the chords that I was using and this, that, and the other, it just led up to this really great chord. And so I said, well, you know, nobody says I had to be a blues guy anyway, so I'm keeping it. I like it. And then, um, you know, I, I, I would have, you know, because I was using GarageBand, so you find these samples and you throw them in there. And everything started really starting to make making a lot of sense and um, to me. So that was kind of like the evolution of that song, which has very little to do with a change in me, but it's one of the songs. And it's like, whoa, 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 was the same thing. It was just like, it was just this whimsical thing. And then at the very end, I couldn't make it tag out right. So what it effectively becomes six or an eight bar bar key change, then it resolves back to the original key. And um, in my mind, I heard Cab Calloway. And so that's why it ends that, why it has that, 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 that 1940s swing thing going on in there. And just, you know, if dogs run free, why can't we? Across the sweeping plain. <laughs> All right, so the album is coming out at the end of this week. Although this will broadcast after it comes out. That's fine. But what? So as an artist, having this thing come out in a few days, uh, in a couple of days, we've just gone through, or we're still going through a pandemic. I know that things are opening up a lot more in the states than they are here. Yes. But what goes through your mind at this point, waiting for this album to come out? after a long year of quietness or of difference? You know, I'm not, I'm not so sure that I like this going back to what happened before. Do you think we'll go back to what happened before? Well, in the music business, yes, because those that control the purse strings and the doors, actually, once they get to be able to have full occupancy, it was a great deal for them. Okay, you get a lot of bands that come through, don't make a hell of a lot of money. You get two or three bands that, that make a good deal of money. And um, I think during this past year, people have been listening to a whole lot of stuff. And they're just kind of saying, well, you know, there's a whole lot of music out in this big world. And we can find it and we can listen to it and we can enjoy it as opposed to being programmed to what they were listening to before and everything being the same, you know, just another, just another name on the record, but the record still sounds just like the next record. 
And right. I, I think there are a lot more people that because because they had time on their hands, they couldn't go anywhere. There were all these options. They could go streaming. Something would go across their streaming platform and they would go, well, you know what? I, I like that. I don't know what it is. It's not what I'm used to listening to, but it kind of sounds kind of good, you know. And uh, so I think the actual listener has become more educated in what they're listening to, I think. Uh, so I think you're going you're gonna to see a lot of really hip music from people coming out. And will, will they tour? Will they do this? Will, do, will they do that as a musician? Um, I don't know if they will or if they won't. But at least they went through a little over a year. Whatever they did to survive, obviously it worked because they're still here, okay? And they didn't have what they thought was their mainstay. You know, they, they learned other things. They learned other tricks to survive and to make money. And a lot of them were really surviving back the, before the pandemic. So now they have a, they have a group of new skill sets. I mean, I know guys that, that do their own vi live videos and know how to edit and do this and do that. Something that I was too damn lazy to learn how to do. But I did learn how to use recording programs better so i can go into a studio go into my studio do things take it out it's on the grid and take it to somebody else something that i should have learned and a lot of kids that are five times younger than me already know how to do but i didn't know how to do that right so you know i i you know i, I learned it how to promote not promote well i did learn how to promote myself somewhat but i learned how to use studio tools which is the one thing that I really enjoy doing is recording. So I could go in there. And then, of course, you know, I bought a couple of guitars that I really wanted, you know, during the pandemic. And, and, I, and I've been waiting for them for years. And, you know, somebody needed the money and I happen to have the money and I got what I wanted at the price I wanted to pay. But I, I think you're going to see a lot, lot hipper stuff in the kind of like the underground world coming out coming out now. How does it change the way you approach things? Nothing. Doesn't change doesn't change how I approach things. Um, it just it allows me to be more intelligent about what I do. But it, I don't haven't changed anything. So when you said you, you're not sure you'd like what we're going to go back into yeah. Or go back to what are you saying there? Just the fact that people might see music differently? Um, well, people are going to see music differently, I believe, I hope. Um, but, you know, I, I, you know I, I don't want to do so much of the dear Mr. Please, I need this gig. I'm, I'm going to just... I'm going to do the shows that I want to do at the club venues that I liked playing at, that people were nice and they respected me and I respected them. You know, there's some, there were some fun things that I did a few years before, which they were few and far between. 
Okay, so when you get there, you you know you do three or four shows, and and uh, they're fine and dandy and they're good and everything, but it's just kind of not what you really wanted. And then you get to the, but but you know you're going to that other place, which is exactly what you wanted. So you just kind of put up with it. So uh, you know, hopefully, I'll be able to every show will be exactly what I wanted to do. You know. Well, what about growing your audience or? going to new markets? Well, I, one of the smart things I did was I hired a new publicist. Was she better than the other publicists that I had used? No, they're all good, okay? First thing she did was, you know, I told her, well, I said, well, you're not the only one I'm looking at. And she goes, yeah, I figured that. Uh, but she said, well, can I hear it? Can I hear what you're doing? And I was like, well, uh, sure. But nobody ever asked me that question. Can I hear it? This usually is just like, yeah, okay, send me the product. We'll, we'll work, start working it. She actually wanted to hear, you know, and she actually, you know, calls me every day. You know what I mean? And, and she's working these markets that are different and I'm getting good responses. Like, go figure, the Americana folky market likes this record they're writing good reviews you know i mean i don't i don't know if they're writing them because they get paid by the word or <laughs> you know i mean i have no idea but i'm finding myself in other places and i used to always say well you know to other can you can you get these other places to to, to write and listen and it was just like yeah 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 and it was all the same cast of characters, you know, always. And there's nothing wrong with those people. It's just that the only way to grow your market in a world where you can't get out there every day is through people listening and reading, you know. Right. I know, reading. I know it's something that people haven't done in years. But, <laughs> I mean, I, I bought a book <laughs> and I read it. It was great. I wasn't watching YouTube or or streaming something. It was the Robbie Robertson book. It was mm. good. It was good. And um, so, uh, you know, because I, I always knew that, that you know, because people, people used to say, well, you're not blues enough. And I go, yeah, I know, but I didn't ask to join your club. You invited <laughs> me, you know? And, and does that even matter to you? What? Does that even matter? Yes, everything matters. Every, everything subconsciously matters. There's no one likes rejection. Even if you ask for it, you still don't like it. Okay? And it, to be rejected is, is a terrible thing. I mean, that's just being human. That's part of you're born, you live, you try not to be rejected, and then you die. <laughs> But I meant just the being in that blues label thing. You know, it's as long as other labels don't care, you know, I mean, if somebody from a, from a folky thing says, hey, man, I really like your music. They didn't mention a, a label. They just said, right. I like your music. And, and I guess that's the highest compliment because that, that means that, that they like the way you think because 
you can't not think and make any kind of art. Art is always somewhat confrontational. Art is supposed to make you think. So that means if they like my music, they like the way I think. They don't have to like what I am saying. They like the way that I can conceive of and say it, I guess. You know, I mean, it's art. Yeah. I'm going to wrap this up, but I want to ask you one more question. From that guy who wasn't sure about being the singer, the, the Back solo to that artist. Guy. <laughs> yeah. Who is now the singer solo artist. Tell me about how you look back on that journey and where you are today. I guess you might say that you kind of had to slowly and carefully feed the ego so that the ego didn't get to a point that it ate your soul. That's that's your summary? Is that not good enough? <laughs> no, that's fine. It, that sounds a, like a, a bit of re rejection to me. <laughs> no, no, no rejection. It was just an interesting take on it. Yeah. I'm not, I'm not here to judge. Everyone's here to judge. <laughs> Don't kid yourself. Everyone judges. No, that's just that's just kind of that's kind of it, you know. To walk out on that stage, you can be defeated, okay? Because when you're in a position to walk out there, it's too late. You've got to take control of the floor. You've got to be able to say that this is me. Hopefully you like me. But if you don't, I'm not going to really let it bother me until I'm done, done with this. And I always have to, to think about that You, because you walk out there and you've got to do that. You, you've got to make sure that everyone, I don't want to say is having a good time, but everyone is enjoying themselves because of you, okay? Not that they're enjoying yourselves because they've been drinking too much and you're playing the boogie-woogie, okay? They're enjoying themselves because they, they understand and they can see you, and that's what makes them happy. You've got something that they want, okay? They may not have known they wanted it before, but after a song, they realize that they kind of are interested. For years and years and years, I used to always start, the first song was always soft and slow and careful. And people in the crowd would be talking and making noise and doing this. And by the time the song was over, because usually by the time the song is over, it's gone from really soft and slow to loud, okay? But now they're not talking, they're not drinking, they're staring at the stage. And now they're open for me to do whatever I want after that. But you have to carefully and politely educate them in five minutes to what you're about. <laughs> 
And I don't have to sing. A lot of the, most of the time, that's an instrumental. Interesting. Eddie, thank you so much for doing this. Thank really you for having it. me. Well, we have a history. We do. <laughs> we do. We're old enough to have a history. <laughs> exactly. Some people are just old. No, I really appreciate you doing this. And, and thanks <laughs> for sharing your thoughts and your, your life with me. Thank you. Thank you very much.